Good morning. 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 Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, it is always a joy to come before you, and we thank you so much for your love and what you provided for us. Thank you for this opportunity to share with, uh, with each other, and we ask that you will join us in our study, that we can have greater discernment into your kingdom, your methods, your principles, and be more effective in advancing them here on this earth. We pray in your holy name. Amen. As we look at class today, we're doing Lesson 7 in the, in the study guide, and it's titled, Under the Least of These. And you know that title comes from Jesus' description in Matthew 25, where he is giving a description of what things will look like uh, before his coming. And you can uh, pick that up in, in starting in verse 31, and uh, this is what the scripture says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. I'm going to pause. We're going to finish this story, but we're going to talk about it as we go through. When Jesus comes, he separates peoples, the peoples of the world, into two camps. The Bible here describes those camps as the sheep and the goat, goats, but he also describes other places, wheat and tares, fruitful vine, withered vine righteous and wicked, and so forth. The question is, who determines into which group a person finds themselves? Well, you, you, I, I like the answer you just gave. You said, we do. I just read, maybe some of you have read it also, a, a magazine that was put out by another um, ministry, not ours, uh, advancing the message of the three angels. And it takes a little bit different position than we do uh, on this question. And, and in that magazine, it, it asserts or states that during the judgment, God decides uh, which camp people are in when he, when he judges us. Is that true? No. no. It's not judging us. No. We're well, judging them. We so think about what Jesus is saying here about separating sheep and goats. When a shepherd, if a shepherd separates sheep from goats, is the shepherd determining which animal is a sheep and which animal is a goat? No. No. And so the object lesson that Jesus is teaching for anybody who can actually understand what the shepherd is doing, separating sheep from goats, is that he's simply confirming what actually is. A sheep is a sheep, a goat is a goat, separating the two based on what their actual condition is. And so when Jesus comes, some will be righteous and some will be wicked, and he acknowledges and confirms the choices of people to settle themselves into one camp or the other, and he separates based on the accordance of what people have chosen for themselves. And that's what we choose. And how do we choose which camp we're in? What are the choices or choice choices that determine which camp we put ourselves in? Yeah, you're not going to say which one we believe. A lot of answers there. A lot of answers. So ultimately, it will require a faith relationship with Jesus Christ or a reconciliation with God so that our hearts and minds have been restored to godliness and we have his principles or laws written in our hearts and minds. It says in Hebrews uh, 8.10, and then as we have reconciled and been one to faith or trust in him and open our heart and as laws are written in our hearts, we have new desires and motives, don't we then begin to practice? We actually prefer God's ways to the old worldly ways. Isn't that true? Yeah. Okay. And this means, get your mind around this, that we choose to practice in how we treat others. What we choose to practice in how we treat others determines what God we worship, what law we prefer, what character we develop, what kind of people we become, and what camp we end up in. It starts with a reconciliation with God, a faith relationship. He uh, gives us new desires, but then we choose whether we agree and want to follow those new desires or not in how we live and how we treat others. So God divides people based on whether they live in harmony with his character, methods, principles, design laws, or not. That's what he separates. Separates the healthy from the unhealthy, from the good from the evil. So the underlying basis of God's division 
are the design laws that he has constructed life to operate upon. We're either in harmony with them or we're not. The sheep, the people of God, have God's law written in their hearts. They love God. They love others. They respect and protect liberty. Whereas the unrighteous, get your mind around what I'm about to say now, the unrighteous may hold the same doctrinal beliefs. They may worship on the same Sabbath. They may have been baptized in the same way. They may even claim Jesus as their Savior, pay a faithful tithe, believe in the Bible, believe in creation and yet still want the Savior off the cross in order to keep the Sabbath holy of the God they just crucified. You see, if we we can hold all the right doctrines under the wrong law, the human law model, system of rules you must obey, and if you don't obey them, you, uh, justice requires we inflict punishment. And under that model, you become authoritarian, legalistic, and justify coercive force to ensure right behavior. So we see that Jesus, God, at the end, will divide society based on what actually is. Those who are in harmony with him and his character, methods, principles, and laws, and those who aren't. But the question, does society today also divide people? Trying to. And what law? What, uh, what, uh, let's talk about, along what lines do you find the world dividing? What is the root motive of worldly division? Is it love? Is it holiness? Is it righteousness? Is it goodness? Justice. Power. Power. Yeah. Money. Selfish power. So, understand the the world divides based on um, mostly artificial, or artificial, um, innocuous, uh, lines that actually have no moral worth, but can incite division and inflame it. So let's let's look at some of these. Uh, Religions, are religions used by the unrighteous to exploit the masses, keep groups divided, empower a few elites, they uh, the, and these types of religious movements that do this will always set up various types of rules that require some type of obedience to, and they will almost always have gods that are uh, are angry and wrathful and re, and will punish if you don't meet their standards in some way, and therefore you have to do things to to pay or appease or get someone else to do things. How about human legal systems that create? caste divisions in society that will always benefit a few elites at the expense expense of the masses. And this is historic throughout all human societies, state-sponsored slavery, caste systems, divine rights of kings, this idea that there's actually some difference between the royal class and the commoner class. Uh, laws of the aristocracy that only certain people can own lands or businesses and other people uh, cannot. Uh, Tax laws or property laws, laws uh, related to affirmative action and diversity and equity. Notice these various differences uh, between human law and God's law. Human law divides by setting up all kinds of arbitrary divisions to legally cause and enforce various groups in society to be either advantaged or disadvantaged by imposed law. And this is always done to keep the people divided against themselves so they don't unite to take power from the elites. These divisions in society, if you're looking for it, will always empower a few elites. God's laws, though, are the protocols of which life is built, and they treat everyone the same. There is no respecter of persons. Uh, if you, uh, regardless of your cultural, ethnic, racial, religious, language, backgrounds, if you have people from all different backgrounds that jump off the Empire State Building together, the law of gravity treats them all the same. It's how God's laws work. If you break them, you damage and injure yourself. If you harmonize with them, you gain benefit. So Satan and the elites understand this. And then when you understand God's law, then each person has the power within themselves in relationship with God to choose 
his way, his methods, his laws, and benefit from that. And all God's blessings are free gifts to us. Satan and the elites do not like this. They want power, they want control, and therefore they want a system that they can manipulate artificially by inserting rewards and punishments that require people to seek them to get their authorization. To, to, they want people to adore them or worship them or pay them or endorse them. This is what the worldly systems do in order to reap the reward or avoid the punishment. And so Satan tricks the masses of people to focus on individual cases of injustice in society while completely being, being oblivious to the systems that are truly behind these injustices that keep the elites empowered and keep society divided. So the selfish elites exploit people by inflaming division along lines of race, tribe, language. You can see that in history, can't you? Yes. But, but wait a minute. Didn't, didn't God cause the divisions of language and tribe and race at the Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel? Didn't he do that? So what do we understand that to mean then? If God caused these types of divisions, then how is it the wicked are exploiting them? Would God do something to cause exploitation and abuse? So what's the context of what's happening? After Adam sinned, no human could experience eternal life, salvation, Unless Jesus comes. So in Genesis 3.15, God promises the seed of the woman, the Messiah, is coming to crush the serpent's head and provide salvation. Satan begins working to oppose that, to try to destroy the human avenue, to get every human heart in the world to harden against God. And if he can do that, then there's nobody for whom Jesus can be born. And at the time of the flood, there's only one righteous man left in his family. And so God intervenes therapeutically to put to sleep the whole world other than Noah and his family to keep open the avenue for Messiah. And shortly thereafter, what do we find happening? Almost immediately, though new generation is beginning to unite in a worldwide confederation against God, building a tower so they can climb themselves into heaven without seeking God. And so what does God do? He intervenes to confuse the languages and to spread. It says he scatters them into different groups across the world. Why? Is it a punishment? No to slow the spread of Satan's lies and delusions because as they can't speak the same language, they can't communicate the lies as well, and the deceptions are slowed, and the racial and other groups that emerge uh, prevent a unified world and total rebellion that we had at the time of the flood. And so this is an act of grace and mercy. These types of divisions, though, along race, language, tribal lines, have no moral value, meaning that the race one belongs to, the, the language one speaks, the nationality of tribe of origin has no bearing in determining who is righteous and who is unrighteous. has no, no bearing in it at all. It does keep the entire population from becoming unified in rebellion against God, however. And the Bible tells us that this division of the human species into these different groups that God brought to slow the rebellion and allow the plan of salvation to be realized, he reverses it. It describes that at the, when Jesus comes, all these divisions are reversed when Jesus is put at the center and people from every nation, tribe, language, kindred, and people unite again into one family with Christ at the head and Christ in the heart of everyone and at the second uh, at the uh, second coming, we receive new immortal bodies and all the evidences of the decay and the, and the disease and the sin and even the racial differences, in my opinion, are going to be erased. And we will have heavenly bodies, not earthly bodies, that are immortal and we will speak a new language. And it won't be Greek and it won't be Hebrew and it won't be English and it won't be Swahili. It would be heavenly language of some sort. And we will all be united again in one with Christ at the center. How else does the world divide and separate? And notice, they do this constantly. Well, by wealth, by politics, by fame, by nationality, by sports teams and their fanatics, by gender. But you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't God divide human, human 
kind by gender, male and female, in the beginning? Yes, he did. This is another godly division of individualities that come together in God's design, unity of love, where the two retain their individual identity, but in a loving paired partnership, the two become one, and as a united pair, experience levels of of trust, love, understanding, insight, growth, maturity, that is not possible to experience in isolation. And he made us complementary to each other, where the husband serves the wife and the wife serves the husband in loving, self-sacrificial interest in their welfare. And in so doing, they both grow to ever-increasing depths of wisdom, maturity, uh, godliness of character. And so this was part of God's design for us to be able to experience the uh, methods and motives of God in, in our development and character. So yes, this is part of his, his design. Do we see Satan trying to cause harm in God's design after sin entered. He perverts this godly division. Um, We see it in all types of ways. Uh, Instead of loving service, fear comes in, and and now we become threatened by uh, the talents and abilities of of the opposite sex or our partner. And and so somebody needs to uh, dominate or control or abuse or exploit or deny equality to and so forth. And we see how abuse has happened throughout human history along these lines because of fear and selfishness in the heart. So all these types of divisions that society does are designed to actually prevent the godly unity that he has designed for us to experience. And they have consistent tactics that they use. And you can identify when the enemy is working if you look for these tactics. Lies. Always lies. Always falsehood. Always distortion. You will find it everywhere you go. Uh, And you can find that... um, strongly in some of the things happening across the landscape of our society today, like the diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, perversity. Uh, those words are defined by the, the organizations advancing those to mean things that mean something other than diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're actually fraudulent in the way they're used. Arbitrary made-up rules, coercive pressures of all kinds, fines, uh, threatening your licensures, threatening your your accreditation as an organization, accusations. Satan is the called Satan actually means the accuser. He's the accuser, and he makes accusations. If you come out and speak against certain politically correct ideas publicly in our society today. Um, do the people who hold a different view enter into a reasoned and evidence-based uh, debate, respecting your freedom of speech, allowing you to present your concepts, uh, defeating those concepts with better concepts and reasons and logic and evidence, or do they simply begin an out, outrageous screaming accusation that you're a racist or a homophobe or misogynist or sexist and accuse you of all types of things – to get your channel shut down, to get your business to not be, um, you know, utilized or used anymore. Accusation without evidence. Which which method is actually used in our society today? Lots of And so, and think how effective it's used. Because think how many people are afraid in our society now to speak the truth that they believe because of the fear of the accusation and the mob mentality that they might have to face if they speak truthfully. God divides the world. Honest versus dishonest. Loyal versus disloyal. Righteous versus unrighteous. Um, The the sheep and the goats. And his divisions are along the, the lines of his design laws of what's actually healthy and true based on character. But Satan also divides the world. He divides the world along lines that actually have no moral worth at all, but in, that inflame our insecurities, our fears, and our willingness to hurt others. Continuing on with what Jesus said. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed of my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, 
and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visit, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or in need of clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. What is Jesus here? Remember, this is in the context of separating sheep from goats. We're going to finish the goats in a minute. He's describing the sheep right now. But what is Jesus actually using in this story as a criterion that separates? How we treat others. How we treat others. Is he, did Jesus use in this story the method of baptism? How you take communion? What's, what you believe about the state of the dead? Which day you go to church on? How much tithe you pay? Uh, did, was, there, was there a doctrinal statement here that Jesus used to separate? No, it's how we treat others, because his kingdom is the kingdom of truth, love, and liberty. These are operational and functional protocols upon which life and health are built. And we either harmonize with them and live that out in how we treat others, and as we live that out, it solidifies that into our character, writes it on our hearts and minds, and we become these types of people. We become either honest people by practicing honesty, or we become dishonest people by practicing dishonesty. We become loving people by loving people. We become selfish people by exploiting people. And this is what he's saying. So again, whatever law we choose to apply to ourselves in how we treat others determines what kind of people we become and what camp we end up in. But what do you think is implied by their question back to him? What's the implication here? When they said, when did we see you in all of these circumstances and do all of these things? What's implied by the question? They did it out of the heart, not not out of obligation. Well said, Tina. It indicates they were not doing these things to earn credit in heaven as a, or as a requirement or as a checklist or as a rule. Or they weren't trying to get themselves off the naughty list and onto the good list but it was an outworking of the hearts. Hearts that have been changed. We have choices in life to trust God or distrust him. And then in that trust, to choose to do what we understand is godly, righteous, holy, virtuous, healthy, reasonable, or not. What's loving versus selfish? We have to choose. Which means we decide which principles in day-to-day operations, in dealing with others. Then the methods we employ then, again, writes it into our character. Do we value the law of God or the laws of men? The Jews who crucified Christ, which law did they value? Man's law. Even though they kept the same Sabbath as Jesus and believed in the same Bible as Jesus and attended the same synagogue and, and observed the same feast days and so forth and so on. They did it all through the human enforcement law system, not through the love of God and others, methodology and motive. They were not willing to leave people free. They used coercive force. Remember the parents of the man born blind when they asked if this was his son and how did he come to have his sight? And they said, he's an adult, you can ask him. And it says right in scripture, they said that because they were afraid that the religious leaders would throw them out of the synagogue because they were throwing people out of the synagogue who had faith in Jesus. They were using coercive pressure, threatening. That's why when we get to heaven, there's gonna be people there that were surprised to see there because of the life they apparently had but yet they were always giving to the poor, giving to help others. Well said. They lived out God's law. That's exactly right. And, and this method of coercive enforcement, threatening to get your way, this is the method of the, the beastly systems of this world. And this is the method that was used during COVID. Mm-hmm. And the forced business closures. Please do not buy into the idea, the lie, that the closures of businesses were done to stop the virus from spreading and to save lives. 
please be wise enough to discern that all those closures that they did did not stop the virus and did not save lives. Recognize that, in fact, the only businesses that were really forced to shut were small businesses. The major corporate businesses, little hardware store around the corner, owned by mom and pop, uh, supporting this family for, for three generations, shut down. Big corporate hardware stores left open. I'm sure that was because the virus knew it couldn't infect people in the big corporate stores. <laughs> Follow the money. Notice, this is exactly correct. The businesses owned by the single mother struggling to support her family, forced closed. Corporate businesses were not. There is an estimated transfer of wealth from the low and middle income homes to big corporations during that two-year period of $2 trillion. Wow. Wow. The big corporations got way wealthier and the average citizen got way poorer. Uh, liquor stores stayed open. Central businesses. Small businesses forced close. Are, is alcohol really a, a necessity to life? And does alcohol improve the immune system? In fact, it's well documented that alcohol consumption impairs immune system and makes one more vulnerable to viral infections. Well documented. But they were kept open. Interesting. Or the arbitrary and completely ineffective mask mandates, including outdoor mask mandates. Did this have any impact on stopping the spread? This was well known. This was documented before this ever occurred. Multiple studies show that it's ineffectual and has no effect. Understand what happened had no, it was not intended, these shutdowns were not intended to stop the spread of the virus nor save lives. It was intended as psychological warfare to condition people to stop thinking for themselves to surrender their judgment to authoritarian leaders and to be willing to coerce their neighbors into doing something that their conscience should tell them not to do. And get ready for the next disaster that they're going to put on us. That's exactly right. It was a societal manipulation and behavioral and psychological conditioning of the masses to justify ungodly methods in the pursuit of a claimed good cause. The claimed good cause was to save lives so that people would be even more willing to coerce the next time when they ratchet up the intensity of the need even more. Mm -hmm. This is the same situation that Caiaphas said to the Sanhedrin, it is better for one man to die than the nation. We have a nation to save. We need to protect our people. It is okay to do to convict this man unjustly and to send him to death even though he's innocent because we have to save more lives. It's okay to act immorally as long as we've got a good reason. Continue on with the quote. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. I was a single parent working to support my family, and you forced my business closed. I was a healthcare worker, and you threatened my job if I didn't violate my conscience and care for my spirit in the care for my spirit temple. They will answer, Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger in need of help, clothed and, uh, needing clothes or sick and in prison in need of help? When did we ever threaten to take your job if you didn't comply with our demands? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whoever, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Understand it's the methods we choose to practice and how we treat others that determines the God we accept, the laws that we love and embrace, and what kind of people we become. Satan is not deceiving the majority of the world to build Satan cult worship centers. 
He didn't trick the Pharisees in Jesus' day with idol worship. He tricked them into embracing and practicing evil methods in the pursuit of what they believed was a good cause. Explain what eternal punishment is. Eternal punishment. Eternal death. They die and they never rise again. They're punished. The punishment is eternal. The lesson draws our attention to the scripture that focuses on caring for aliens, fatherless, and the widows. And uh, the significance of this. What is the significance? Let's, let's, let's break this down. Is it merely their status as aliens, fatherless, and widows? Uh, or is there something that these three groups represent even in the larger landscape than their objective physical needs? Well, let's look at the aliens first. The strangers are aliens in the land. Do we have examples? Well, Abraham had some strangers come to visit him, and what did he do for them? He was very hospitable. He provided food for them. He provided water for them. Uh, in Bible times, when you were traveling to other areas uh, of away from home, did they have rest stops, convenience stores, fast food restaurants, travel lodges and hotels? No. So, so the, the, the admonition to for the stranger and alien uh, is God is wanting people to practice his principles of loving concern. To care for people who don't have the resources because they're away from their, their you know, security or resource or family base of operations. And we want to be a blessing to those who are, are not able to um, access their, their resources while they're away from, from home. There's also the application or the idea, the spiritual one, that we are all, you know, we're in this world, but we're not of it. We are aliens passing through, and we would hope that we would be treated well, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. What about the idea of the fatherless? Certainly there is the element of the financial security that the, that the fatherless, uh, needing a home, food, protection, um, and inheritance often came through the fathers in those societies. But in those societies, the fathers also were to provide something more than home, food, clothing, security. What else were they to provide in that culture? That's right. They were the priests of the family. They would provide spiritual direction. So the, the fathers, uh, being fatherless, also represents those who don't know God, don't have him as their father. They're wandering confused in the world. Uh, and so they, they, uh, the idea of caring for the fatherless is to go out into the world and find those who are orphans, so to speak, in this world that don't have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. Bring them back to the knowledge of God. Let them be adopted into the family of God and become our brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's this aspect of caring for the fatherless that is literally caring for physical needs, but there's also a larger spiritual lesson. And that same lesson applies to the widows. There was the, the objective need to provide for those who in the society needed shelter and food and, and sustenance. There's no question about that. But there's also a spiritual application. The widows, soon as Adam and Eve sinned, okay, you know, they they are now alienated from God. They they are no longer in a love trust relation. Remember the metaphor, the widow is a person who's without a husband. Okay? And the metaphor of scripture is Christ is the groom and his saved people are the bride. So the widow would be the person who is out of that marriage bond relationship and needs to have her husband back. And so this idea is that we uh, are going into the world and inviting people into that love relationship with Christ uh, as well. And without that, then, then they, you know, the widow had no home, the widow had no name, and the widow had no position in society. And without Christ, we don't have a heavenly home, we don't have our new name, and we don't have our eternal position. And so all those things are restored to us as we're reconciled to Christ and become part of the, the, the bride of Christ or the church. We certainly don't want to just spiritualize it away, so I'm not suggesting we don't actually care for people's literal needs as well. I think both are included here. Sunday's lesson focuses our attention on the time when Jesus in the synagogue was reading from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, uh, and he applied it to himself. And I'm going to read to you um, Isaiah 
Uh, first, I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19, where he's quoting. This is Luke's record of Jesus quoting of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And then I'm going to read it to you from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And I want you to notice if there's any significant difference in, in what Jesus quoted what, than what Isaiah wrote. And here's what, what Luke records. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then this is what Isaiah has. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and to re the release of darkness uh, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Do you notice anything of significance different in these two quotes? Vengeance, yeah. So Jesus leaves out the, the portion of the quotation and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, but then says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Why do you think he did this? Why do you think he left it out? Do you think he was like correcting Isaiah? Isaiah just got a little exaggerated back when he was recording and, and he put a little extra stuff in there that wasn't supposed to be there and Jesus is editing things uh, to improve the scripture? Those who were listening didn't understand the definition of God's vengeance. Well said, Russell. Well said. That's exactly right. He was speaking to the audience, and he was uh, editing his, not the scripture, but what they could tolerate. He's, like he said to his apostles later, I have much to tell you, but you can't yet bear it. And so what were the Jews looking for in a Messiah? They were looking for the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah were they looking for? A king to get it out of Roman's rules. They were looking for a Messiah who's actually like Satan in character. No, that's true. They were looking for a powerful being who would come and use miraculous and mighty power to destroy their enemies, to punish the Romans, uh, and to put the Jews in charge of the exact same coercive earthly system where the Jews get to have power over everyone else and exploit everybody else for their sake. They were wanting to actually just take over the Roman system and just put the Jews in charge and the Romans to be the, the subservient slaves. That's what they were looking for. Forced compliance. So Jesus left out the line that they could easily misunderstand because I suppose in his judgment, he recognized they were not going to be able to be educated to its true meaning at that moment. What those things really mean. Some might ask, but why did Isaiah even have the, the line about vengeance in the first place? Why didn't Isaiah leave it out? God has foreknowledge, knew Christ was going to quote it. So why did he even put it in to start with? Or some might argue that Jesus uh, left it out because the vengeance is a different time in his ministry. At this time, he was coming as the selfless sacrifice to die in our place, and he'll come the second coming as the vengeful God with the rod of iron. So the vengeance belongs, but Jesus left it out because he was only referring to his earthly ministry at that moment, not his vengeful punishing ministry to come later. What would you say to that? Well, what law lens are we understanding it through? Always ask the question, what law lens? We have the human law lens. Uh, well, what is vengeance? Vengeance is using power to harm someone, to make them pay, to inflict some recompense upon them. But if we have design law, vengeance actually means something else, and the Bible tells you. In fact, Isaiah, where he quoted from, tells us right in the first chapter, laying a foundation. So by the time you read the end of Isaiah, if you remember what you read in the first chapter of Isaiah, you would know what this meant. And this is Isaiah 1, 24 and 25. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your iniquities. What? 
You see, doctors take vengeance on disease. They use their weapons of radiation knives and actual scalpels and all the weapons they have to attack and kill cancer. They don't attack and kill their patients suffering with cancer. They want to take vengeance on the infection, not the infected. And God wants to use his power to destroy sin, not sinners. And so notice what Malachi says. He's describing a time in human history that we're living in right now, the time right before the second coming. And he is describing what some call the cleansing of the sanctuary, or uh, which also is described in our magazine, cleansing of the bride or cleansing the people or preparing the people for Jesus to, to come so we can see him face to face. And we find this in Malachi chapter 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. I'm going to pause right there. Before we go into what, what, what comes. He's going to send his messenger before he comes. And later, Malachi says that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah will come. So the messenger, Malachi says, is the prophet Elijah. And, and the apostles said to Jesus, well, isn't the prophet Elijah supposed to come before the Messiah comes? Because they knew this prophecy. And Jesus said, if you will understand it, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Because it wasn't about the physical person of Elijah was coming. It was about coming with a message like Elijah gave. And if we understand that, that is going to happen again before the second coming. And what is the message that Elijah gave? If Baal be God, worship him. Well said. So Elijah's big moment where he called the question, basically, if you've ever been in a debate, somebody eventually will call the question, okay, when there's a debate. Uh, make your vote. Decide one way or another. Call the question. And at Mount Carmel, Elijah calls the question. If God is like Baal, worship him. If God is like Yahweh, worship him. Make your decision. Who, who do you believe God to be? And so if we don't understand this Elijah message, uh, and and the Bible is saying before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will send a messenger before him that will call the question. Well, who was Baal? Baal, let's I'll just, I've said this before, I'll go through it again, but it's powerful. Baal was the son of El. El was the supreme God. Baal was the son of El, as in El, El, Elohim, El Shaddai, okay? Baal was the god of weather, often called the Almighty, the Lord of the earth. Baal was the god who brought rain and thunder and lightning, who fertilized the earth. Baal controlled the sun. He brought the harvest. Baal fought against the great serpent, Leviathan, as well as battled against the god of death called Mot. And in his battle with the god of death, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the earth. So what would be wrong with you worshiping God the Son who fights the, the serpent, who faces and confronts death to fight death, dies for us, and rises again to bring us life? What would be wrong with worshiping that God? Because Does that sound at all familiar to anybody? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Baal. He needs appeasement. Yeah. Baal requires that. Thank you. Baal required appeasement. A payment had to be made. A sacrifice had to be offered. And Baal, in order to get the blessing, and Baal became Zeus, the god of thunder to the Greeks, Jupiter, the god of thunder to Romans, Thor, the god of thunder to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to all people who worship a god that has human-imposed laws and requires the blood of a human sacrifice be offered to that God to pay that God a sin debt blood payment so that God won't use his power to kill you. Does that sound at all familiar? That's Baal worship. And the prophet Malachi says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will have a messenger, and a messenger will go 
It says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare a way before me. And how do we prepare the way? We are the people taking an Elijah message because we're taking a message that God is not like Baal. God's laws are not like human laws. God is not the source of inflicted pain, suffering, death. God is the source of life. And this is the message that is to go to the world, to lighten the world, to prepare the people to receive our Savior when he comes. And so, you know, rather than being the source, sin is the source of death. Wages of sin is death. Sin went forth, grown, brings forth death. And Jesus came not to pay a penalty to the Father, but it says in Timothy, to destroy death. And, and he brought life and immortality to light. Or he became our substitute for what purpose? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteous of God. It wasn't for the purpose of appeasing his father. God so loved the world that he sent his son for the purpose of confronting and overcoming sin, Satan, and death, destroying those powers and restoring us into eternal life with him. Then continue on with Malachi. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Remember the message that is to go forward. I will send my messenger before. And as this message is going forward, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, what temple? As this message is going forward at this time in human history, that God is not like Baal, the Lord comes to his temple. Is this referring to a building made out of stone and wood? Or maybe out of gold and silver? Is this a, a building of inanimate material? No, this is speaking of the spirit temple. The corporate body of believers founded on the cornerstone Jesus Christ and on the foundation of the apostles. We are being built together into a house for the Lord. He comes to his temple for what purpose? Well, notice, and, and if you doubt my assertion here, notice what Malachi says next. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. And what does that do? It cleanses. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And notice what he purifies. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So this message that God is not like Baal, that he is not an imperial magistrate, he is not the source of inflicted, is we're sending this message, Christ comes to the spirit temple, the hearts and minds of people, to free us from fear, to free us from guilt, to free us from shame, to, to restore his living law of love into us and to settle us into living out his principles. And then, notice, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by in the former years. What are the offerings we will bring? Romans 12. Present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The offerings that these people bring who have been cleansed are themselves. We offer ourselves. Or as David prayed in Psalm 51, quote, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You did not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. This is what the Lord wants. This is what the righteous bring to him. And then continue with Malachi. And as we come to him, in this way, notice what God says he does as he comes to the temple. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against the sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says, but, but do not fear me or do not reverence God, uh, says the Lord Almighty. What, what is this judgment? What law model? This is what we read about already in Matthew. He will come and separate the sheep from the goats. His diagnosis, he diagnoses accurately. He doesn't, his judgment doesn't determine who is a sheep or a goat. He simply diagnoses accurately and reveals the condition of the heart. Hey, these people are adulterers. They're perjurers. They're frauds. They cheat. They lie. They exploit. They abuse. They have refused my healing. They're goats. The actual condition of their heart this is not a judicial process. God is working to cleanse us all. And as we see the truth of who he is, revealed in Jesus, that he's not like Baal, we are one to trust. And as we open the heart and trust, the spirit comes 
and transforms the inner workings of our being. We have new motives and desires, and we love them, and we des- we align with them, and we say, yes, I want to live that way. And we choose to practice those methods and how we treat others, and we grow and we mature, and we are sealed or solidified into the kingdom of God. So Jesus read to them this prophecy of Isaiah, said it was fulfilled to them at this time in history, and this is what Malachi was talking about, the cleansing or the purging or God taking vengeance upon was the purifying or burning out of our hearts the residual elements of rebellion and sin. And when he read them this prophecy and described it to him and said to them, today this is fulfilled, how did they respond? Did they, did they celebrate? Did they rejoice? Were they happy to hear it? No. They hated him and they didn't want. They tried to run him out of town, didn't they? How do you think Christians today would receive Jesus' message if he was giving that same message to us today? Have we seen over the last several years sheep and goats manifesting their own characters and how they treat their own families, neighbors, friends, and community? Have you seen many people under the guise of some righteous goal, seeking to somehow save lives or better society, willing to advance methods and practices that are antagonistic to the kingdom of God, that actually harm their neighbor. The lesson goes on to say that Jesus overthrew their ideas about who was was right with God and who wasn't. He rejected their false ideas that poverty means a person is cursed of God and wealth means a person is right with God. And the lesson states in the last paragraph, Jesus' love for the poor was one of the greatest evidences of his messiahship, unquote. I think we would agree uh, that, that there's no question, uh, both with the principle that our, our, our health and wealth, nor our poverty or illness, has any indication of our rightness with God or not, that those are, those are independent elements. <laughs> We all agree that Jesus loves every human being, regardless of race, tribe, language, social status, wealth, or poverty, sickness, or health. So I had a couple questions for you, though. Didn't don't, don't, didn't the Bible record to us that on a couple of occasions, Jesus took a few loaves and a few fishes and fed thousands? Yeah. Doesn't the Bible record that Jesus instructed one of his apostles to go to a fish and get a gold coin? Yes. Doesn't the Bible tell us that Jesus told his apostles on one occasion to take their nets and throw it out on the other side of the boat? And when they did, the net was overfilled to the point they hadn't had another boat help them because it was so many fish in it? Yes. So didn't Jesus have the ability to provide gold coins or baskets of fish or storehouses of grain for the entire nation and lift everybody out of poverty if he wanted? Uh (laughs) Why didn't he do it? (laughs) Contemplate that. The rich need the poor to develop their character. Was Jesus' primary mission, first off, to relieve human po- human physical poverty? No. No, it was first to change their hearts. mission was to reveal the character of God. What would have happened if Jesus would have miraculously provided free resources for every person in the nation, lifting every person up with with houses, clothes, uh, closets full of gold, food, everything, everywhere. What would have happened? They wouldn't have needed God. Sin would have flourished. Yeah, they wouldn't need God. Can we, by giving wealth to people, make them righteous? No. No. Mm -hmm. Welfare system. Can we save people from themselves by giving them wealth? And if people are going down a, what the Bible calls sinful or self-indulgent, self-destructive lifestyle pattern, do we help them by relieving them from the pain their own behavior brings upon them? No. No. Those are the consequences of their behavior. Does that mean, because what I'm saying here is true, that we don't actually give to help the less fortunate? Or do we still give to help the less fortunate? Yes. We still give, yes. But we, if we want to do it in a godly way, we have to have some discernment of where and to whom and, and what we're giving, not just blind giving, right? Right. Yes. That's right. 
our godly goals are to create opportunities for people to embrace and participate with Jesus and the things of God for them to experience improvement and development of their lives. Oftentimes, the, 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 the circumstances people find themselves in are a result of some of their own self-destructive choices. And they need that pain to bring them to awareness for a better life. In, in the 12-step programs, they call this letting somebody hit rock bottom. They have to hit rock bottom before they wake up and go, you know what? Um, what I've been doing is, is wrong. I'm never going to get well on this path. I've got, I've got to go a different way. And then lots of resources can be brought to help that person once that person owns that their own previous patterns of living were self-destructive. But if a person never comes to that point, the more resources you pour in can contribute to more self-destruction. And this is the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son took wealth, went away into wild living, squandered it, ended up eating pig food and sleeping with the pigs. The father remained a wealthy man. Why didn't the father hire a social worker to go after the son and make sure he had a pizza sent from Pizza Hut every day and had a hotel and also also got a bus pass and a cell phone and, and uh, government paid uh, uh, health care? And why didn't he provide all that for the boy? Because it wouldn't have helped him any. wouldn't have the same way. If the father would have done that for the boy, do you think the boy would have come to the point that the Bible says... He came to his senses. Or might he have concluded, I'm doing okay. It's not so bad out here. And was the father who didn't use his resources in that way, was he being unkind or unloving or selfish or cruel by not sending help to the boy in his rebelliousness? Not ultimately. Has Satan tricked many empathic empathetic and good-hearted people into giving people what they could legitimately provide for themselves and therefore becoming enablers to enable them to destroy themselves more. Yes. Most of the pro-social programs do not help people from a godly perspective. They function to destroy godly character and ultimately keep people trapped in discouragement, dependency, and helplessness. In Monday's lesson, there's a paragraph. We're going to unpack this a little bit more. In Monday's lesson, there's a paragraph that says, In their writings, the Bible authors include many of God's provisions for the poor, the stranger, the widow, the fatherless. We have records of all this um, all the way back to Sinai. Six years you shall sow uh, and uh, the land and gather its produce, but the seventh year shall uh, it shall lay in rest and so forth and so on. And they talk about how le- they would allow the gleaners to come in and so forth. Can you recall any people from Scripture who benefited from this style? Ruth. Ruth. Ruth and Naomi, that's right. Now let's think. These are two widows, and they did not have the means to go out and buy grain. They had no money. They didn't have land to plant grain. They didn't have seed to plant grain. So God created a system that free food, grain, could be made for them. But, but in order to avail themselves of it, what did they have to do? They had to go out and glean it themselves. Then they had to thresh it themselves. Then they had to grind it into flour themselves. And then they had to pair it into food themselves. And the lessons are very straightforward. What was provided for them was what they legitimately could not provide for themselves. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the fields. They didn't have the seed. But they still had the uh, ability to use their bodies to gather it, thresh it, grind it, prepare it. And they were expected to do what they could still do for themselves while being provided what they could not do for themselves. And the benefits of doing it this way... They would be physically active, getting out, being active. This results in all types of physical benefits to both mind and body. I won't even go into the the benefits to our mind and body to being physically active, but there's tons of them. Their useful labor labor would give them a sense of accomplishment and purpose and worth, uh, would diminish their discouragement and hopelessness, would encourage them to continue in usefulness, would help them build their sense of autonomy, would... uh, would uh, help them build a sense of achievement, inspire them to continue to develop themselves. They would, it would prevent them from burdening others from doing what they could still do for themselves. Uh, the work for the minimum return of simply substance, subsistence or food to eat 
might cause them to evaluate how much effort they're putting in just to eat and consider if there was a job they could put in uh, for and, and work and not only get enough money to buy the food, but maybe even improve their lot and station in life. But what happens when we provide for people that which they could legitimately accomplish for themselves, but through their own choice, through their negligence, or through laziness, they refuse to do so, and we still provide? What happens if we get passing grades to children who do not actually learn the material or achieve the passing grade? Regardless of the reason, even if they're from a disadvantaged, objectively disadvantaged background, they didn't have books, they had no teachers, they had, had an environment that was antagonistic to learning, but somehow they end up in our classroom, would we benefit them if we pass them along when they still don't know how to read? The rewards become meaningless then. It's detrimental in the future. Yeah. They're doing that now. The second paragraph lesson says that we should defend the poor and the fatherless, um, and the poor is another group that can represent those who are also spiritually poor. But then the lesson goes on to, to talk about something called social Darwinism, about this idea that, um, uh, well, I'll just read the paragraph. In contrast to more modern times, particularly in England, under the impact of what was known as social Dar Darwinism, many thought that not only was there no moral imperative to help the, the poor, but that it was, in fact, wrong to do so. Instead, following the forces of nature in which the strong survive at the expense of the weak, social Darwinists believe that it would be detrimental to society to help the poor, the sickly, the, the indigent, because if uh, they multiplied, they would only weaken the social fabric of the nation as a whole. However cruel, this thinking was the logical outgrowth of the belief of evolution and the false narrative it proclaims. What's the, and Paul is, of course, and so you should hear what they're saying, what social Darwin is that, okay, if you don't have food, then we're not going to provide for you. Um, but how is that different than what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, if a man will not work, he shall not eat? See, the social Darwin, I'm going to go fast because we're running out of time. Social Darwinists believe that there is no God and that, uh, and that we are the, in the process of evolving to higher forms of life through stronger people surviving to pass along their genes. Therefore, if we help the weak survive, they pass on weak genes, and so we want the weak to die out. So let's not help them, and that thereby every generation, the, gener um, the, the strong pass on their genes, and the, and the species evolves and improves itself. This is all big lie. It's a big fraud, but that's the basic philosophy. Uh, the Bible view is that we are made in the image of God and that life and health only happens in harmony with him. And if you refuse to exercise your abilities, then you get weaker. And so Paul is advocating for those who are able but who won't, they should experience the consequences to motivate them to engage themselves usefully, and that will help them develop. Tim, someone who's yeah. watching online texted me and said, behavior that is rewarded is repeated. For those of us who have dogs, don't we know that? Um, and then laziness rewarded rewarded breeds more laziness and entitlement. No, there's no question about that. That's right. That's right. Uh, so there's a question, there's a quote uh, from um, one of the founders of the Adventist Church out of Testimonies, Volume 5, page 151, in Friday's lesson, and it says, um, do not wait for the poor to call your attention to their needs. Act as, as did Job. The things that he knew, that, that he knew not, he searched out. Go on an inspecting tour and learn what is needed and how it can be best supplied. And, uh, and it's, so does this Christian council contradict what I was just saying about not intervening for people who can no. provide for themselves? No. 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 So the question is how you define what's needed. You have to differentiate from what's actually needed from what's wanted, and then you have to differentiate what's, what is best Best in what regard? Best in economics? Best in what's easiest for you and takes you the less amount of time to assuage your conscience and feel like you're helping somebody? Best for their eternal good. And so you have to define what we're trying to achieve. What's, what do they actually need and what is in their best eternal good? And that is what we seek to supply by the use of our own abilities and, and efforts. So wouldn't it be better, though, 
because we live in such a selfish world. If we could simply get some of our politicians to pass laws to tax people who don't care, to take their money, to be able to give to the poor people in need, to be sure that everybody has uh, equitable income, wouldn't that be better? Are we already doing that? Yeah. And notice notice what's happening when we do that. It's corrosive and it's destructive. It doesn't actually lift people up. It actually it actually is degenerate. Uh, And again, we're talking about providing for people who could actually provide for themselves. We're not talking about um, people who have legitimate disabilities or um, uh, obstacles that prevent them from being able to be employed. But uh, people who, as Paul said, um, could work, but they choose not to. Uh, And that's what that's the difference. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your methods. We thank you that your goal for us is eternal life, to grow and mature and become like you in character. Uh, We pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment. And as we advance your kingdom, we can do it graciously, lovingly, with, with patience, with empathy, with kindness, with sympathy, with understanding, but also with firm application of your principles and not allow our emotions to lead us into uh, caring in ways that actually cause harm uh, because we become uncomfortable by holding a, a healthy and godly standard. We pray for your wisdom and enabling in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.